On October 28, 2017, a user known as Q Clearance Patriot posted on the poll board of 4chan claiming that then-President Trump was preparing for the mass arrest of a cabal of cannibalistic pedophiles that secretly ran the American government. The QAnon conspiracy theory then metastasized across social media and the world, culminating in the January insurrection, which was replete with QAnon iconography. The spread of conspiracy theories into mainstream politics has raised concerns about the resilience of liberal democracy in the post-truth era. I'm David Blunt. This is the City Politics Podcast, a roundtable discussion of politics, international relations, and current affairs. Today, we'll give you the city view on conspiracy theories and democracy. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the City Politics Podcast. We took a little break over Easter, but we're back in full force with an all-star lineup and a fantastic topic, conspiracy theories and democracy. I'm joined in our virtual studio by the molder to my scully, Constantine Vossing. Constantine, how are you doing? Excellent. Good to be back. It's good to be back indeed. And we are delighted to be joined by not one, not two, but three guests, because we know how to treat our listeners right. First up is Anne-Marie Walter. Anne-Marie is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Nottingham and at the Sokson University of Applied Science in the Netherlands. Her research interests include political behavior, political communication, and political psychology. She has particular expertise in comparative perspectives on negative campaigning. Anne-Marie, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. We also have Hugo Droshan with us. Hugo is an assistant professor in political theory at the University of Nottingham. His research bridges contemporary political thought and intellectual history, focusing on Nietzsche's politics, democratic theory, religion, conspiracy theories, populism, and the far right. Welcome to the show, Hugo. Thanks for having me. And rounding out our lineup is Alfred Moore, a lecturer in political theory at the University of York. He works on political theory with particular interests in deliberative democracy, social epistemology, politics of expertise, and technology and democracy. How are you doing today, Alfred? Uh, very good. Good to be here, David. Great. Wow. Before we jump into today's conversation, we need to put our guests through the ringer with the city crystal ball. So, Constantine, do your thing. All right, you guys, I have 10 questions and I'm going to force you. And I don't know how I'm going to force you. I'm going to ask you rather and ask you to just give yes or no answers. I know it's tough, um, but humor us uh, because we've made the experience that this is a great point of departure for our our discussion it has a it's a great way to sort of to sharpen the mind and to uh, to focus the mind so 10 questions and 10 answers and i'm going to switch the order in the middle so you know that will switch the the benefit of coming second and third you know from one person to another we'll start with uh, the order of Anne-Marie, alfred and hugo and then we'll switch it up um, you know at one point in time all right are you guys ready for the crystal ball yep yep Excellent. All right. Question number one. In my youth, people talked a lot about religious cults and how they brainwash people. 20 years from now, will historians look back and say conspiracies such as QAnon are the religious cults of the era in which we currently live? Anne-Marie, yes or no? Yes. Alfred, yes or no? No. Hugo, yes or no? Yes. Question number two, will the 2025 edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders published by the American Psychiatric Association have an entry for 
conspiracy psychosis as a recognized illness? Anne-Marie, yes or no? No. Alfred, yes or no? No. Hugo, yes or no? Yes. Question number three. Will historians look back in 20 years and conclude that the conspiracy theories peddled today are qualitatively different from those which were around 100 years ago? Anne-Marie. No. Alfred. Yes. Hugo. Yes. All right, let's switch it up a little bit and let's start with Alfred. Question number four. Imagine you do this podcast again next week and we invite a full-blown QAnon conspiracy theorist. Would you be able to reasonably debate this person? Alfred, yes or no? Yes. Hugo, yes or no? No. Anne-Marie, yes or no? No. Question number five. Will conspiracy theories turn out to be the nail in the coffin of liberal democracy? Alfred? No. Hugo? No. Anne-Marie? No. Question number six. Will non-democratic states experience similar problems from conspiracy theorists in the near future? Alfred? Yes. Hugo? No. Anne-Marie? No. Right, Alfred, one more time, uh, and then we'll switch to uh, Hugo as our number one. Uh, question number seven. In 10 years, will democracies have better control over the spread of belief in conspiracy theories? Alfred? Yes. Hugo? Yes. Anne-Marie? Yes. And now we're going with Hugo first. Now, question number eight. Do conspiracy theories flourish whenever people have no actual material problems in their lives? Yes or no? Yes. Anne-Marie? No. Alfred? Yes. Question number nine. In 20 years, will the Forbes list of the richest people on earth have the first entry that says something like, quote, he became a billionaire by inventing and selling a conspiracy theory? Hugo? No. Anne-Marie? No. Alfred? No. All right, final question. Question number 10. Will future political philosophy and political theory be characterized by a post-democratic consensus stemming from a willingness of so many people to believe in conspiracy theories? Hugo? No. Alfred? No. Anne-Marie? No. That was it. I hope it wasn't too painful. <laughs> Great. That was really good. Uh, for This is one of our sort of most divergent crystal balls. We've got a lot of uh, agreement and disagreement, so it'll be exciting to jump into it. But before we do, I think we might want to take a minute for our guests to explain it like I'm five, where we ask our guests to explain our core concept to me because I am a notable dummy. So when we talk about conspiracy theories, what exactly are we talking about and how are they different from other beliefs people might have? Okay, conspiracy theories are uh, yeah, theories that people hold uh, to explain events or uh, social phenomena by pointing towards a group of people that deliberately in uh, secret can be blamed or can be seen as the cause for the social phenomenon or event and that they are deliberately um, working together uh, with, a, with a purpose uh, that is uh, often against the common good or in their own self-interest. So that are conspiracy theories. Uh, are they different than other theories? Was the question, if I uh, correctly phrase it? Or that, other uh, beliefs that people might have. 
you know, depends what you compare them with, but they are different in the sense that they have, they have, it has to have the element that it's a deliberate conspiracy by a group of pe people. So there is uh, intent in it and it has a somewhat negative nature. It, uh, conspiracies are not for the common goods. Uh, they have the intent to be uh, against of the interest of the majority of the people. So okay. I think that, that they are different, but they are, for instance, they share a lot of similarities with, for instance, religious beliefs. The, the difference, I guess, with the way I would think about conspiracy theory is that I would say it doesn't have to be a theory. The association with theory makes you think that it's in the genre of sort of scientific explanation or it's an explanation about the world. And while they often take that form, they also often don't. And they take the form of gestures of doubt or insinuations or sort of invoking malign agency without having to, without necessarily doing any kind of explanatory work. So, you know, when we call them theories, we're already sort of loading them, you know, we're already saying what sort of genre, what sort of box we want to put them in. And it's not obvious that they should be in that box. So quite a few people looking at conspiracy theories today will say, look, we should treat them as a, as a form of political speech, right? That might be one other sort of genre in which you could think of them. It's, it's, it's a, a way of talking about political life that's supposed to do something, to have some effect, not as a way of making sense or explaining. So I'd say we should, this isn't so much your, your, your definition for a five-year-old. I've already departed, sorry, from, <laughs> sorry about that. I've already departed from that and gone to saying, well, actually, here's, here's what we shouldn't define it as, right? So, so I say, maybe we should be, we should be careful. I, I think we should be wary of thinking of them as theories. Just to underline the, the kind of the, the plot, the conspiracy element, you're an explanation of an event that is, the explanation for that is a small group of people plotting together, as opposed to you know an explanation that is a lie or structures of interest or whatever it might be. I think that's important. There's a very interesting, I mean, there's two very interesting questions. One is, does it have to be against the, the, the common good? Plots to kill Hitler, you know, were they good or bad? Well, that's, you know, you can have that discussion. And the other interesting thing I think we need to come into is that when we talk about conspiracy theories today, what do we mean? Because there's always been conspiracies, right? And people, and there's a moment in time where you move from conspiracy theories just being kind of a term of art. Sorry, this is definitely not for five-year-olds, but the idea is just like, no, I think what happened here was there was this conspiracy by these different people. And that may be a very good explanation for a lot of things that happens in politics of the world. Kwasim Kwasam, the philosopher, says, you know, the conspiracy theory with capital C and capital T, you know, everything in the world. They don't just control politics, but they also control technology or even the environment. So even when we're talking about it today, I think that's what most people hear when they hear conspiracy theories, you know, 9-11 was an inside job because blah, 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 blah. Or what we have with the coronavirus right now, which is, you know, there's this plot by Bill Gates allied with Soros to implant technology into our brain to control us by using 5G. That's really conspiracy theories or, or the conspiracy theory. But back in the day, before the 20th century, it was like, well, you know, I think that, you know, this... These, these group and, and the courts were conspiring against, against the king. If you look at Machiavelli, Machiavelli's talking about conspiracies all the time. Of course, there's conspiracies, the group of people trying to assassinate somebody to take over power. So I think that's one of the key debates or the key kind of challenges. And when we talk about what we mean by conspiracy theories today, is it the older or is it the new understanding? I think that's a good platform for us to start talking on this. One of the things that I think I want to pick up is something that 
Anne-Marie said about the comparison between conspiracy theories and uh, religions and religious cults, because this was one of our questions. It was the first question that we asked uh, and the parallels between conspiracy and cult thought or religious thought, uh, not to necessarily lump the two together, they might be distinct, but Anne-Marie and Hugo, you said that there were similarities and Alfred, you dissented saying that, they're, that they are distinct. So I was wondering if we could parcel that out a little bit. I guess I should say that I'm not really sure how you define a religious cult, right? But I take, but I take it to be, when we talk of something like a religious cult, I take it to be, uh, you know, a specific social group with very high costs of exit, where there are people are quite tightly bound into a sort of structure that doesn't just bear on their beliefs, but that bears on their lifestyle. In a, you know. When I think of a religious cult, you know, I'm thinking of Jim Jones, right? And I'm thinking of your child leaving home, joining these people and not being able to sort of come back or, and then taking all their money and, and, you know, this kind of stuff. And there's a way in which, I guess, when some people talk about conspiracy theories, they invoke elements of that, right? So when Cass Sunstein talks about conspiracy theories, he talks about them being self-sealing. Right? These kind of beliefs that are systematically irrefutable. And so I guess you could say there's a sort of cultish element in, in a sense that once somebody's got into a kind of self-sealing thing, you can't, you can't get them. You can't get them back. It would be like your child joining, you know, joining Jim Jones's cult. So I can see that analogy with it, but I doubt future historians will use that language, partly because this is so because something like QAnon, I think was the example that you, know, you showed, partly because it's so widespread, partly because it's so shallow, and partly because it's not clear to what extent people really even believe it. I mean, I think there are clearly some people who are very deeply, right, who are very deeply sort of into it to the point that, the, as in the pizza gate, right, early queue, they actually show up at a pizza parlor with a gun to free the children in the basement, right? There are some people, who are in that position. But then there are a lot more who are just shitposting, who are just trolling the libs, who are just entertaining this, who are doing all sorts of things. And there's all sorts of kind of genre confusion, I think, around, around the kind of QAnon culture. So there'll be all, there will be histories, and I'm sure there will be books written about it, but maybe, yeah, but, but that's why I doubt they'll quite be framing this in the same way they would religious right. cults or relig they won't say this is what happened to religion in the early 20th century right, right. so, so, so we, could, we could say that there are sort of secular members of the QAnon conspiracy but if you're in the people's temple then you're not exactly showing up for Christmas and Easter you're in there 24-7. Some religions encourage a kind of Manichaean worldview and so sometimes that's the comparison is that conspiracy theories sometimes also portray the word as forces of good forces of evil. So that's why the analogy is often drawn. And I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it too much in terms of cults, um, but actually when Alfred started talking, I was like, actually, wait, maybe, maybe there's more mileage to this than I have thought of, because it's true in terms of, I think Alfred's probably got the balance right, but it's true that in, in some, we do see that it's, um, you know, conspiracy theories do get isolated. Sometimes they lose their friendship, they come to small different groups. Um, and it's it, it, and the conspiracy theories is becomes a strong part of their own identities too, and they kind of it, it gives them a new form of sociability and our meetings and there's fanzines and stuff like that. 
So there is a cult, it depends how strongly you say cult. And I think Alfred is right in saying some of it is there to, to troll, you know, the liberals or whatever it might be, that's true. Although when you talk about religion, I presume that form of kind of membership is, is valid too, right? As, as I think, um, David, you were suggesting. But the Manichaean viewpoint is normally why we say there's at least some type of analogy between the two. I agree with uh, Hugo. Eh? It's, it's also about this idea that you, yeah, like religion, you believe in the unseen. So the conspiracy is not visible, uh, but we believe in it. Uh, yeah, cult is then you have, if you are, then you maybe have to define it, but I come from a very religious background. So when does religion become a cult is also, I think, a difficult uh, for, for some people. The Pentecostal movement is in itself already a cult. For me, this is mainstream. Yeah, because I've seen it as a mainstream movement. So it has to be more extreme than to be seen as a cult. So I think it's also perception. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with that. Uh, it's funny when they had the January 6th uh, riots in the United States, and there was sort of a lot of QAnon people present there. And it was sort of a culmination of this sort of fever after the American presidential election. And it came to nothing. And everyone thought that Trump was going to some stage a coup d'etat, release people from prison. And then when it didn't happen, you know, people will think, oh, well, this is going to be the end of the conspiracy. It's going to be the end of the cult. But it reminds me of, uh, of a classic book that I remember reading as an undergraduate student, uh, When Prophecy Fails by uh, Festinger, Reichen, and Schachter, which is about a UFO cult in Illinois uh, in the 1950s. And, you know, the cult leader was like, oh, the aliens are going to come. They're going to take us off the planet. And it's happening on this day at this time. No UFO shows up, right? So you would expect the cult to disperse. But they double down. Uh, and the cult continues and people say, well, this is just, you know, a trial of faith and they move on. And this is a, an interesting phenomenon that I think goes back to what Alfred was saying about that sealed epistemic circle where people can't break out of it, even when facts go against it. And we might see a comparison between religious cults and conspiracy theorists on that count, but perhaps not in all uh, instances. I think I want to um, sort of connect that to a second uh to the second crystal ball question that we had. Uh, so one way to, to identify what uh, conspiracy theories are is to compare it to other social, contemporary social phenomena or you know, recent social phenomena such as a religious cult and that's what we just did. Uh, and then uh, sort of building on that, I also asked you guys um, whether the conspiracy theories um, that we know, you know, today that we have today, whether they're any different uh, from, you know, those that were around, uh, let's say, a hundred years ago, uh, or maybe in the fifties um, uh, or in the sixties, since those were sort of uh, periods that that you guys already referred to. And Amory was the only one who said no, no, it's not uh, qualitatively uh, different. Why? Why do you say that? So first of all, I'm not a theorist here, so maybe I my my level of thinking is just too superficial, eh? is too abstract. But I think that a lot of conspiracy theories actually are quite similar. First of all, towards the ones that we already had historically. So for instance, now at the moment you have. Uh, in the Netherlands, there is a lot about um, the new world order that would arise uh, due to the COVID uh, pandemic, the Great Reset. Historically, we have seen already a lot of um, conspiracy theories that also have an element of establishing new world order um, in them. So I think there are often elements that reoccur. And I think that the new element maybe nowadays is not necessarily the, the theory in itself, but maybe the way that it's delivered. So the fact that we are living in this age of social media, um, 
how uh, conspiracy beliefs maybe are spread, proliferated, amplified, and how visible um, the phenomenon also in itself is. And that uh, because of uh, maybe at the moment, because of crisis, it, it looks more mainstream uh, and is more visible than in other periods. Uh, so I think it's maybe more in the visibility of the phenomenon than that the phenomenon itself is actually different. Alfred and Hugo, let's start with Alfred. Um, well, why do you why do you think otherwise? Why do you think yeah. historians will come to a different conclusion 10 years in the future? I think one of the reasons that they'll recognize that or that they'll say this phenomenon is different, well, partly is because historians are never going to want to say everything's always the same. They'd be out of a job if they started saying, you know. But they but I think substantively, I think one of the differences between conspiracy, what we call conspiracy theory today, and say a hundred years ago, somebody espouses it, like somebody who's saying similar, similar sounding things, right? Someone who's explaining some complex event by pointing at them, some shadowy them who's pulling the strings. And we now call this a conspiracy theory, but they didn't at the time. And it's only since the 1950s that we've actually had the phrase, we've had the term conspiracy theory. It's a post-war, Cold War liberal sort of term and it's a term of art to describe this kind of stigmatized category of beliefs or right and i think what's really distinctive about conspiracy theory today as opposed to something from 100 years ago is that they know their own name right that conspiracy theorists are highly self-aware and reflexive about the fact that they're called conspiracy theorists about their relative positioning with res with respect to the mainstream so there's that kind of reflexive knowingness. There's a kind of nudge and a wink to a lot of conspiracy talk. You get this all the time from someone like Donald Trump, right? Who isn't writing some 200 page book replete with footnotes in which he explains how the world really works. He just uses these kind of little knowing nudges and winks and gestures and doubts. So I think there's something in the kind of reflexivity of, of conspiracy theory today that's going to make it look a different thing, a different sort of social phenomenon to even to, to the kind of conspiracy theorizing you got around something like JFK in the 60s or around Pearl Harbor in the 40s or the protocols of the elders of Zion in the 20s. So I, you know, so I think we should think of conspiracy theory as a sort of evolving form and as a kind of moving target where the fact that we've given it this label affects the thing that we claim to be describing or observing and, and kind of works back on it. I actually agree with, with what's been said on both. I think the reason I said yes to the, the question was I had in mind what Anne-Marie said, which is to say, I think the, the content of the conspiracy theory, what we now call conspiracy theory, is always the same. It's always a small group of people, shadowy group of people, et cetera. And the exact kind of identity of who they are has perhaps evolved over time. Back there was, you know, there was Jews for a long time, Freemasons, Jesuits. Now maybe that's moved on to, to something to something else. So that I don't think changed. I, th I think, but social media, I think, does play a role in, in has at least propagated or where, where it's coming from. So like we've we spoken about QAnon already, like what's something like the QAnon, even though it's saying the same thing like all the other conspiracy theories, that it is something that starts in a chatboard, you know, an online chatboard, and then it kind of spreads for that. Nobody really knows who Q is, et cetera, et cetera. So, so there is a bit of a difference there. And Alfred does make the, the right point about the self-reflexivity because it does ask the question of, well, if conspiracy, so we have this term, Back in the day, a lot of things that we would have called conspiracy theories, because the thing with conspiracy theories is that we say that 
And we tend to think it's, it's somewhat marginal, especially in dem democratic societies. It's kind of marginal. It's not what the majority believe because we're all rational, et cetera, et cetera. Although a lot of kind of more quantitative recent work suggests that that's not the case, that at least half of the population in most Western countries actually believe some form of conspiracy, um, conspiracy theories. But I think there's, if it's like so a lot of things in the, in the past would have been just, you know, largely belief, like a lot of anti-Semitism was believed by the majority of the population. Is that different to what we would talk about in terms of conspiracy theories today? And we are still talking about conspiracy theories today in a kind of a Western context. With Anne-Marie, we're, we're doing work on looking at, at it outside a Western context, and we see belief in conspiracy theories is much, much higher. It's like 70 or 80% of the population believes, for instance, that 9-11 was an inside job. So we say that's a conspiracy theory. But if you live in a context where everybody believes that, is it still a conspiracy theory? What is the nature of that belief? I think that's different. Um, and I think that ties into Alfred's points about the nature of, of what it is, conspiracy theorists. Most people in the countries we've looked at, Turkey, these types of countries, I don't think they're going to say no. It, they're not going to say we're conspiracy theorists. They're just going to say, no, we really think, you know, Mossad is behind 9-11, probably because they really think that. Um, so I think that does change both social media and also how we, what is the nature of conspiracy theory? The way there's that term now, that's a new term. How is that different to what there was in the past? And also how it is in other countries where that term is probably not accepted. That's really, really interesting because we tend to think of conspiracy theories as being a problem for democratic states, right? And democratic, liberal democratic cultures. Based on what you're saying here, Hugo, uh, this is actually something that democracy is good at containing perhaps, uh, is conspiracy thought. Uh, is that something that we might be comfortable in asserting? Well, I think they have been better at doing it recently. I mean, it's always there. Like, there's something about conspiracy theories being a kind of anthropological constant, right? Which is that part of our psychological makeup would mean that we'd be slightly paranoid about things that are foreign to us, that seem frightening to us, whatever. We'd have kind of somewhat paranoid thoughts. And I think we can all relate to that when we're feeling a bit down or whatever, like, oh, the reason this didn't work was because of this person, et cetera, et cetera. So we can all relate to that. So that's probably part of who we are um, as, as human beings. So it's always been there. I think what has been a fundamental shift has been how it's kind of propagated itself and how social media has allowed this type of propagation that perhaps wasn't there after World War II. Um, and, you know, after World War II, you are in this context of Cold War liberalism, where oh, this is dampened down, where there's a clear enemy, which is communism or capitalism on your hand. So things are a lot kind of clear, and conspiracy theories rise more when there's uncertainty. I think what's interesting, the difference between democracy and kind of authoritarian regimes, and Anne-Marie and I are working on this at the moment, so we're still kind of trying to, this is kind of talking, talking it through, is that... Conspiracy theories in a democratic regime you associated with being critical in terms of power or, or to go back to Alfred's point, kind of like epistemic authorities, right? They don't believe the formal line. That's part of who conspiracy theories are and what their identities are. And obviously in a, in a democratic system, you need that because you need critical citizens who are going to criticize power. That's part and parcel of it. Obviously the difference between criticism and conspiracy theories is that criticism is perhaps open to a dialogue, whereas conspiracy theories are already positing what the alternative truth actually is. But I think it was, um, it was uh, Christopher Hitchens who had this line that, you know, conspiracy theories are the exhaust fumes of democracy, is that it's kind of like, it's a necessary evil. Um, so there's this kind of, democracies have this kind of ambiguity where you need, you need citizens to be critical 
yet at the same time you can't so conspiracy theories may play a role in that but obviously the public sphere can't be dominated by by conspiracy theories because then you've given up on rational debate that's the, i think one of the dilemmas for democracy authoritarian regimes i don't they don't face the same type of problems because they're not looking for criticism of uh, of, author, of authority or epistemic authorities in their own context they want approval so I don't think they have this problem in the way that they're still trying to foster a critical kind of population. Um, so I think they, they, they face different challenges. And it would seem that authoritarian regimes may play, I don't know about this claim, actually, but do authoritarian regimes, they can play on conspiracy theories more easily, perhaps, than democracies can. We've seen, obviously, Trump has used it to his advantage, how far and how long that's gone on for but Erdogan, for instance, been using it for all the time. Or again, if you look at Orban, Biden, Hungary, like a lot of it, and that seems to be working. It seems to be working not just for a one-term presidency, but for a while. So it seems to it seems to perhaps play more to the roots into the hands of authoritarian regimes than democracy because they don't face the same kind of paradox, if you want, of of, of critical conspiracy theories. Uh, Alfred, would you like to sort of uh, venture yeah. some, some input onto the idea of uh, democracy and conspiracy theories? Yeah, I mean, because this, because I was thinking, I had two thoughts occurred from your, because I think you ask a very good question, you know, and from, from yours and Hugo's comments. I mean, one of them is just how it's, um, it's dangerous and a, and a little sort of smug to sharply separate the sort of democratic from non-democratic societies, when in fact, if you sort of take away that kind of that kind of distinction, and you'll see striking similarities across, say, Erdogan, you know, the language used by Erdogan and Trump, or you know, these kinds of these kinds of things. But what I what I thought was particularly, what I thought was really interesting about your question, David, is that I think there is something plausible about that. Put it this way. A lot of our anxieties right now might come from the fact that the period after the 1950s was in many respects just really unusual in the Western democracies, like historically speaking. I mean, and this is in the economic domain, this is of course like Thomas Piketty's argument, right? He says, you know, this, this sort of these glorious years after World War II, these years of fairly well distributed growth and so on, were just the, a great anomaly but we could think of this, this as being quite anomalous in, in other respects as well, right? In, this, in respect of having, say, strong independent state-based media in various countries, a sort of a responsible and boring media environment. You know, say, look at the BBC founded, you know, in the early to mid 20th century, you might find similar, you know, you can find similar sorts of professionalized journalism in the US emerging in the early to mid century. And so what we're seeing, and so one way of looking, you know, one way of looking at that is saying what we're, what we're seeing now is actually a return to something more like a sort of historical norm, right? <laughs> or not, we, we, we might think of some of the ways in which our public discourse has become fragmented. You could look back at an earlier age of pamphleteering or as some people have done have said, look, we should try and interpret this as a return of oral culture over print culture, right? As a way of, you know, as a way of talking about like, but the general point that where I think, you know, where I think you might be right is that perhaps it was only in the sort of Cold War West that, you, you know, that it became possible to attach this label conspiracy theory to a certain sort of way of thinking about politics and society that was pushed outside the bounds of adult discussion. And that that act is what maybe is falling apart now, right? The conditions that made it possible to dispel 
this kind of set of beliefs. Because I think, you know, Hugo's right. Like if we look back through various historical episodes, we can find ways of talking that are thoroughly mainstream, that are not at all problematized as such, um, and that we would today describe as conspiracy theories. Like in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, right? There's language about the slave power conspiracy that is, there's a historian, cultural historian at Tübingen called Michael Butter, who's written a book about this, you know, and he's, he looks at these various episodes and says, look, yes, this is, this is conspiracy theory language. It's, it's thoroughly mainstreamed and not problematized, and it doesn't have a name, but there it is. You know, so I think there is something distinctive about the sort of post-war, post-war democratic period of the, and that that might be why we're having this recurrence of anxiety about conspiracy theory today. The further we get away from the mid 20th century, the more it seems like a fairyland, right? Uh, that is, it was very exceptional and then was internalized as being the norm, prosperity, stability, strong democratic cultures. And we're moving, it feels like we're moving away from that. And this sort of begs a really interesting question. And that is, you know, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? What drives this belief? And uh, sort of in the crystal ball, we asked about whether people buy into conspiracy theories when they have no actual problems in their lives or no material problems. Emery, you said that uh, people don't buy into conspiracy theories when they don't have these sort of background problems. I do think that often there is a, yeah, there is a basis uh, because um, uh, well, in the literature, at least, um, they often distinguish, you know, like three um, motives for believing in conspiracy theories in the sense that they fulfill three um, basic human needs. Uh, the first, at least in the social psychological literature, they, they fulfill basic, they give people meaning. Yeah, meaning from when there is uh, uncertainty and clarity uh, of certain, certain things that happen in your life or events that you see. So they give meaning. Then also it gives people um, something to hold on to. So it gives people more control over the uncertainties uh, that they experience or anxiety. Um, now, and then the third one is that it can give people an identity or it can give the group that they belong to or associate with a more positive identity. Uh, conspiracy theories, as they often um, define their own group or uh, depict a uh, other group as uh, in, a, in a less uh, favorable uh, light. Yeah, so there are motives from it. So, But I do think that often when people experience um, anxiety or uh, at least lack of control, that this is more likely to happen when people actually experience material pro problems because you see throughout at least the empirical fields, uh, the one that Hugo and I are also in, and I am an empirical political scientist, so I am not so much into theory that often, or to a lesser extent, I should say, that, uh, yeah, that people often are, um, for, yeah, for instance, you see this association with lower, lower income, lower education, people that are less sure about their financial uh, future or sure about future as a whole. Sometimes there's a link also with globalization and employment. So I do think that the people that experience, at least in society, yeah, a larger lack of control are people that potentially have material problems. So, so I think that they are more likely to believe in conspiracy theories or more open to it. I would like to elaborate on that and ask you a follow-up question because I know that you've done work on um, politicians and the kind of uh, immoral behavior that they sometimes expose. And you've done an intriguing experiment uh, on that uh, that was published a couple of years ago. And in that experiment, you've studied um, whether uh, people will sort of call foul play on politicians' immoral behavior 
based on you know partisanship, whether they sort of belong to a different um, partisan leaning than the politician, or based on whether some sense of general moral foundation that we hold universally dear, things such as care, uh, loyalty, and fairness uh, is being violated. Uh, so the, maybe it's not possible to sort of to to apply this straightforwardly to the question of um, to the question of who believes in conspiracy theories, but sort of just generally, what what would you expect? Would you expect people to sort of fall to prey to conspiracy theories based on their partisan instincts, or because they um, have issues with one or more of these moral foundations, in a sense? Well, of course, there's first of all, there is in this is different work that I did on uh, immoral behavior of politicians with different interests of, of mine. And there you can see that um, although you would expect people who have strong morals to sometimes be appalled by a politician who uh, shows this immoral behavior, however, they when the politician is from their own party, they look the, they tend to look the other way or they then will not punish the politician for for this. So what you see, of course, with um, more experimental research on conspiracy uh, beliefs is that there is also, and this is a debate in the literature, some people actually go that far to say that uh, when you measure conspiracy beliefs, this might be expressive responding by the respondent in the sense that they, um, when, yeah, when, when they, for instance, think that this belief um, is uh, coming from their own um, community or or the society, yeah, social group that they identify with, or it's being said by the politician that they favor. So that is more like an expression of their, ident their identity, basically. I sometimes do think that conspiracy uh, beliefs are yeah, because also this element that uh, it fulfills this need of being part of a of a group. It can be actually um, yeah part of your your identity in the sense that you, that you say that you hold those uh, beliefs. So I think there you can see similarities basically, but I don't think necessarily that, um, yeah, whether people believe in conspiracy beliefs that this is being driven by their moral beliefs or by particular moral beliefs that they hold. You call on Hugo in this context uh, because you were the only one who sort of uh, was uh, ready and willing to pathologize conspiracy theories by by sort of uh, by expecting that the American Psychiatric Association will have a, a, a sort of a classified uh, a mental illness of conspiracy psychosis in, in five years from now. Why, why, why do you think that that can happen? That was somewhat tug in cheek in the sense that I'm sure they can find those types of categories and they, they can come up with it. But, but with that, I think there's perhaps, I mean, there has been a big debate about as some of you may know, one of the first pieces that was kind of written on what we today call conspiracy theories is the paranoid style. So there was from the very beginning an idea that it's going to be somewhat psychologized. And there was a lot of pushback against that to say, well, no, we're not going to say this is a kind of clinical condition, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Although it may be a manifestation of deeper kind of psychological um, issues. So I think that's interesting. And I think the reason I said it also is that I think you had a later question, which was whether, you know, democracies will get better at dealing with conspiracy theories kind of in the future. And I, I think I said that because there was a sense that hopefully democracies are becoming more aware of the kind of the, the dangers they do pose, the threats they do to pose to, to democratic societies, not only democratic societies, but even international politics. If you look at kind of international politics and foreign policies of, of countries like 
you know, Russia and Putin, they've very much been kind of pushing conspiracy theories out as a way of undermining both America, um, you know, the UK also. There are obviously, conspiracy theories played a massive role in Brexit and Trump's elections, et cetera. So it's become a foreign policy tool, which is, you know, one element of a broader disinformation or misinformation. And I think there's there's been more... Con people are taking more, um, they're becoming more aware of this. So governments are trying to react and they're trying to come up with, with strategies of trying to deal with that. So I think that's where my answer was, was coming from. If I could just react to your, your previous point there about political parties, because I think that's quite an interesting one. The, the original work in America that tried to move away precisely from this more kind of psychological work to kind of more empirical survey-based kind of um, work by specifically um, our friend Joe Yuzinski in Miami was to say, well, he studied conspiracy theories in, in America. And his conclusion was to say that if your political party was out of power, you'd be more likely to believe in conspiracy theories than if they're in power. So if you are a Democrat and it's the Republicans who are in power, then you think, you know, it's um, big government in cahoots with, or sorry, big, big uh, business in cahoots with the government. And if you're a Republican and the Democrats are in power, you think it's a kind of Manchurian candidate, communist uh, takeover. And I think we, and it goes back to your question of your other, I said yes in terms of you could find conspiracy theorists everywhere because the data tends to show that you can find conspiracy theorists everywhere because a lot of it is kind of individual. So many might be very well off, very educated, et cetera, et cetera, but individually feel somewhat excluded for whatever reason. So you can find conspiracy theorists everywhere. However, certain people are more likely to be conspiracy theorists because they may combine both those elements, that is individual elements and then structural elements being excluded economically, politically, whatever it might be. And, and part of the work that we did, and I think taking forward the Yuzinski line about your party being in power or not, was to say actually the people who are most likely to be in conspiracy theorists are those who don't vote at all, who are completely either ex feel excluded or self-excluded or whatever from, so they don't vote um, or whatever it might be. And you can see in the UK context, if you look at the Brexit vote, for instance, you know, obviously a lot of people, a lot more people voted in the referendum that they voted in the general election. And I think you can draw a link between the fact that, well, some of them who didn't vote, not all, obviously, but some, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you're more likely not to vote. Some of those people were interested in voting for Brexit because there was elements of, of conspiracy theories in it. And what's key goes back to Anne-Marie's point, which is that one of the reasons people believe in conspiracy theories is because it, it gives them a kind of intellectual apparatus to intellectually at least try to um, take control again, intellectual control and impose order on their lives. Right? Which is why, if you think about it, the, the whole line of, of of the Brexit campaign, you know, take back control. You can see how, how enticing and how powerful that would have been for people who are in a slightly conspiracy theory kind of mindset, because it was about taking back control. They wanted to take back control of their lives and they thought the Brexit vote was going to give them control of their lives again, concerning immigration, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you can see how that was appealing. And I'm sure there's a link between that and the fact that these people did come out to vote for the referendum whereas they wouldn't have voted otherwise in the general election and indeed didn't come out to vote again in the general election, the subsequent general election. Alfred, you look like you want to come in on this. Yeah, I mean, it's because it's something that, I, mean, I suppose it's a general, I guess it's a general issue around conspiracy theory that sort of troubles me, right? Which is like, how, how useful is the category of conspiracy theory as a way of making sense of, of our politics and our social phenomena? And I know that for the purposes of, you know, for the purposes of getting research grants and for all other sorts of things, it's turned out to be a very useful category. But like, 
I was thinking when, you know, when Hugo mentioned Richard Hofstadter and Hofstadter and the paranoid style, as he said, one of the criticisms of Hofstadter was that, look, you're dressing, he said, look, you're dressing this up as a kind of, you know, historical anthropology, historical anthropology, but really you're just saying that right-wingers are mentally ill, right? That that's essentially what you're, you know, what this kind, you know, what this boils down to. And I think that there, that in that kind of move, and I think there's a grain of truth to that move that he is looking for a way to capture and to capture anxieties he had about trends in right-wing politics. You know, he was trying to make sense of the right-wing populism of his day. Um, but there's a, an element of that move has persisted throughout the, the, the way in which particularly liberal democracies have tended to talk about and pathologize conspiracy theorists. And so and conspiracy theories are taken as having some sort of causal agency in phenomena. So people will often, uh, you know, like, like Hugo's doing, right? Like we, we're talking, we talk about, you know, we'll talk about uh, a Brexit and sort of talk about conspiracy theory playing some role. And what worries me a little bit about that is that it does, it's obviously carefully expressed and hedged and so on, but it can sound a little bit like saying that your political opponents are delusional and, um, you know, rather than that they just have different desires, different ideals, different senses of how they, how they want the world to go. So the risk is that this becomes a way of, a way of framing debate that places, you know, that sort of, um, that kind of characterizes opponents as being outside of the frame of rational debate in a way. Of course, on the flip side, as he said, you know, if, if someone from QAnon shows up, can we, ha can we actually have a sensible conversation with them? Well, maybe not, right? I don't know. But, um, but I think there's a persistent sort of, I have a persistent sort of worry about how useful it is to talk, you know, to use this term conspiracy theory to describe like, like whether it's a good way of analyzing what goes on. I, and, and I'm just, and I'm genuinely open about that. I don't know. I just have, I sort of, I, I share some of those worries about sort of dismissive gestures that often come with the use of the term and, and I should say, with the application of the term. Because there's a sort of a politics about who gets called a conspiracy theorist. So there's this guy in the States, um, Jesse Walker, who's written a little bit about conspiracy theories. And one of the things he says, he says, look, it's funny that when you define conspiracy theory in a very dry, in a very dry kind of abstract way about some belief in, you know, some false belief about a small group of people operating in secret to, you know, blah, 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 right? He says, well, if you take that definition, then the entire Bush administration were conspiracy theorists about Saddam Hussein and his weapons of mass destruction, but they were never called conspiracy theorists. Conspiracy theory is what low-class false beliefs involving hidden agents acting to undermine the public good, they get called that. So um, given that there's this, this kind of, there are these, there's like a degree of arbitrary, arbitrariness, I think, in the labeling, what labels get attached, you know, how, how this gets attached, that makes it problematic to use as a category for analysis. Can I rebound on that? Yeah, sorry. And I, Alfred, I, and I take Alfred's point totally, and it's, it's true. I think he's right to point out there is a tendency to use conspiracy theories as a way of dismissing your kind of uh, opponents. And there is, I think, the liberal establishment, university, whatever it might be, is probably is probably guilty um, of that um, to a degree. I would actually, but your last point about Bush is super interesting, 
Because I think what I've been trying to say and what I've been trying to say from the beginning when I was talking about Machiavelli is that actually maybe there is a way of rehabilitating conspiracies as a very useful political category that was clearly a, a massive political category. There was no problem at all from either Machiavelli or the ancients or, as Alfred, as you pointed out, also during the debates in terms of the American founding and whatever it might be. The conspiracy was a term that everybody used all the time. There was nothing problematic about that. And perhaps part of the work that needs to be done here is that you know, if the Bush administrators have a conspiracy theory about Saddam Hussein that he's going to conspire with perhaps with kind of people who have access to nuclear weapons and that's going to be a conspiracy. That's a conspiracy. And maybe we need to find a right term. Sometimes is that like a conspiracy theory with minuscule CNT or a theory of conspiracy? And to distinguish that from the what, as in Kwasin Kosam talks about, the conspiracy theory with a capital C and a capital T, which is that there's a small group of people who control everything in the world. And there may be obviously relations between what Bush was saying about Saddam Hussein, but I think you can hold, you could say Bush is a, is a conspiracy theorist in the sense that he thinks what he's, what he's peddling, the kind of theory he's, he's proposing, he was proposing in terms of Saddam Hussein and what might happen. That may be a theory of a conspiracy, but you could say that without necessarily having to take the next step, which is to say, and it's because there's a small group of people who control everything in the world that we don't know who they are. And I think distinguishing already those two things is quite important conceptually, but also might make, as um, Alfred indeed warns us, to, to be careful and not using it in a way of depicting, um, you know, people we disagree with. And it's true because it's true. Why do people? We, there's something we don't know. Why do people despise conspiracy theories? We we, dis, we describe it kind of empirically, and we try to get access to, as Anne Marie is talking about. Well, it makes people feel they have control, et cetera, et cetera. But when you engage with them, it's like, well, are they saying this? as a way of like showing their identity, of criticizing it, of whatever, or do they actually believe it? Because there's work in psychology which shows that people are aiming to believe two contradictory conspiracy theories at the same time. They said, Alan, dead or alive, people who believe that Osama bin Laden was both you know, dead and alive at the same time, or Lady Di was both uh, both being knocked off by MI6, but was also living her own life with Doddy somewhere else. Right? You can hold both of them. So if they if they can hold, if people who believe this thing can hold both at the same time, it means there's something else going on here. And trying to get at that what the something else is may be simply that they just disagree with how the world is set up and they want to protest about it. And this is the way they found to protest. And that's so, not obviously something that shouldn't be dismissed. And I think, to, and I'll stop talking, but I think precisely um, what we are doing with our work. And it started, Alfred and I were very fortunate to be to work on a research project together. And there's a kind of continuity of this was that, well, so far a lot of conspiracy theories would be looked at the individual level. And can we look at it as a broader um, structural level or to say people who feel economically, socially excluded, they are the ones who are more likely to, to believe in conspiracy theories. So which way is it? Is it that conspiracy theories lead to decrease of democracy or is it, um, What's the term? Is it kind of a manifestation of what's wrong with democracy itself or what's wrong with society? And if you think of conspiracy theories as being an emanation of what's wrong with society, then you could try to address what the core problems actually are, which is more to do with unemployment, social inequalities, feeling excluded from politics, etc. What's everyone's favorite conspiracy theory? Because if you spend a lot of time reading about them, you might have one that you think is just very tasty and I want to know about it. Uh, Hugo, do you have a favorite conspiracy theory? I, I think it has to be JFK because I think it's it's the um, it was the first one I think I was probably exposed to 
I think there, there's always this moment like, oh, maybe something that you know is presented is not really how it was. And I think obviously Oliver Stone's kind of film played a big role in that. So in terms of my first one, although I had a history teacher in school who I think provocatively was trying to tell us that Shakespeare, you know, there's conspiracy theories about Shakespeare and how Shakespeare was actually written by somebody else. So, but JFK was one and was one, you know, he thought about for a while because there's, there's still a lot of strange things. And going back to Alfred's last point, I think there, there are those questions about conceptual clarifications. What, what do we mean when we say conspiracy? Of course, there's been conspiracies. And so can we come up with a term which says, okay, we're, we're exploring a conspiracy without necessarily being a conspiracy theorist in the way Alfred was kind of delineating somebody who's not doing any investigation and won't take any kind of counter evidence and just kind of has this self-seeming capacity. So there is a lot of work and you could say, you know, JFK or even Watergate, there are elements here that are not necessarily, there is conspiratorial elements, there's other co cover-up elements, which are very interesting. And so they help us, um, they help us kind of try to, try to make sense of that. And JFK, there's still, there's still, you know, there's still gray areas which are there. So JFK, I think has to be for, in terms of the, the, what it was. Although what's interesting today, I'm sorry, I'll stop. But what's interesting today is to know whether there's been a generational shift so I think JFK for, for a long period of time and for a certain generation was the conspiracy theory. And I wonder whether today now it's actually 9-11 and maybe even that change is something worthwhile thinking about. Uh, Anne-Marie, do you have a favorite amongst the conspiracy theories? I do not really have a, have a favorite, but maybe I should use this opportunity to um, talk about one of the yeah, a Dutch conspiracy uh, theory uh, just to give more fame to it, uh, the idea that uh, in the Netherlands we didn't we don't have so many um, yeah, political murders, but one of them was uh, Pim Fortuyn, uh, who was the political candidate for the LPF, which is a yeah used to be a right wing um, political party, um, and he got murdered in 2002. So this is relatively recent, at least for Dutch politics, and it's quite extraordinary because it's quite uh, relatively peaceful, or at least without violence, uh, Dutch political history, and uh, he got murdered by a, a left-wing environmental activist, uh, Volker de Graaf, but the conspiracy theory in the Netherlands is that it's actually also an inside job by the Dutch government, and that they have deliberately not examined uh, his death, and that it was immediately assumed that it was this individual, so cool. maybe. And Alfred, same question. Well, I guess just for the, just for sheer like uh, sheer contemporary interest and and sort of vivid memes, I've got to, I've got to go with QAnon. I mean, the image of the Q shaman in the Capitol building, and the fact that I saw re I saw recently that there's somebody in Italy protesting protesting a, 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 a cafe owner I think in Italy protesting against lockdowns, who dressed up in the exact same outfit with an Italian flag painted on his face, and I think that tells you something about the way that there's this, that this is a peculiar sort of cultural form and how it's moving and shifting. And so I think that's a, that strikes me as a very curious and just because it's just so, so wonderfully mad. Excellent. Well, well Constantine, okay. fair is fair. Do you got one? All right. Well, um, you know, this, uh, the, the contemporary ones are too close for comfort in my mind, you know, but yeah, I mean, uh, Pizzagate, QAnon, I mean, that's just amazing uh, in, in its sheer madness, as Alfred said, so I agree with that. But I got to go with the moon landing, I suppose. Uh, and the reason for why I'm going with the moon landing is because the other day, I was reading with my son, uh, this, this is a series of children's books in which mice, I actually playing crucial roles in human history, and they sort of, they do things, um, 
such as the moon landing rather than the humans that we know did it. And uh, so we're reading this book and it's called Armstrong and there's a mouse called Armstrong. And instead of the actual Armstrong, it was the mouse that actually built a little mouse um, size sort of a rocket ship going to the moon and landing there. And it's a beautiful story and it's a beautifully drawn book. Um, but I couldn't stop thinking about this as in sort of making sense of this from the perspective of the moon landing never actually happened kind of angle. And um, that's why it has to be the uh, the moon landing, uh, just because it, it has occupied this, this prominent place in my mind in the past few weeks. The moon landing is is very tempting, especially because I love the conspiracy theory that the moon landing was filmed by Stanley Kubrick and uh, The Shining is a confession of him staging the moon landing. And if you look at the carpets in the hotel, then it's actually a confession. I love that one, but my absolute favorite conspiracy theory has to be aliens. Uh, it has to be that aliens have come to earth specifically in the 1950s and signed a treaty with Ike Eisenhower because I love the idea of Ike Eisenhower meeting a little gray man and then putting pen to paper and signing a treaty that allows aliens to abduct human beings from earth for medical experiments. That just tickles me pink. Uh, because it's so outlandish. Uh, but, you know, there's so many great conspiracy theories out there that, you know, we could have another hour where I just keep listing off weird conspiracy theories that I love. For example, that Bigfoot is in fact an alien who is interdimensional, not extraterrestrial. That one, oh, mwah, that's a chef's kiss from me. Look, while I'd love to spend the next three hours talking about alien abductions and interdimensional Bigfoots, we've run out of time. But before I let you go, I'll let you in on the real conspiracy. Everyone who subscribes to this podcast becomes a stylish, interesting, and generally awesome human being. So you know what to do. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at The City Politics. You can follow Constantine at K underscore Vossing, and I'm at GD Blunt. I'd like to thank our guests. You can follow Alfred Moore on Twitter at Alf Moore. And if you're interested in some further readings on post-truth fake news and populism, be sure to read the recent article he co-authored, Beyond Populism and Technocracy, The Challenges and Limits of Democratic Epistemology, Available in Contemporary Political Theory. Hugo Droshan can be followed on Twitter at hdroshan, and be sure to read the recent piece that he and Anne-Marie Walter wrote entitled Conspiracy Thinking in Europe and America, a Comparative Study, Available in Political Studies. This has been the City Politics Podcast the official podcast of the Department of International Politics at City, University of London. A big thanks to our producer, Atina Dimitrova, and to Cambio for the music. Take care, everyone. I'm going to go read a bit about Bigfoot. Bye.